Genesis chapter 21. It says this, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said that Abraham, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have given it to your people to know who you are and to know what you have done and to know what you, have, what you will do. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in your promises. Thank you for the hope that we have in what you have guaranteed you would do for your people. And so Holy Spirit, come. I pray that you would not only teach us today, but that you would fill us with hope, fill us with joy, fill us Lord, with your presence, that we would live our lives in hopeful anticipation of the promises that you have made to us today. God, I pray that if there's people here who do not yet know your promises, Lord, that they would receive them, that they would believe them, Lord, and that you would transform them in the assurance that you are faithful, God. And so we give you our attention Lord, we give you our, our hearts, our lives, and ask that you would do as you see fit today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, since chapter 12 of Genesis, we've been following the story of Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah in the story, as well as the reader of Genesis, we have been anticipating God's fulfillment of a few promises that he has made this couple. God has promised to give Abraham and Sarah abundant children. He's told them that I will make you exceedingly fruitful, that I will give you more offspring than the numbers of stars in the sky, if you can even count them, Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you an incredible blessing. I'm going to give you abundant children. He says, I'm going to make your family a great nation. You're not just going to be a big family. You are going to be a kingdom in the world. And I am going to bless your family so much so that they will overflow with blessing to all the families of the earth. And so for nine chapters, which totals, totally accounts for about 25 years of Abraham and Sarah's life, the focus of the story has centered on Abraham and Sarah's trust in God's word to them. And throughout the story, as we have seen, Abraham and Sarah have struggled to trust God's promises to them. I think many people can relate to Abraham and Sarah in their circumstances, believing great things for their life. Believing and, and, and hoping for great things for the world, for humanity. And waiting to see our hopes come to fruition. In the church, people have been told their whole lives about God's promises and what kind of future awaits those who believe. 
But life is hard. Life is a struggle. And oftentimes, many of us are struggling to hold on to the hope that we've had, even from a young age, struggling to make sense of what we believe to be true about God's promises, and yet the difficulties of our circumstances and the plight in the world. Even outside of the church, there is a, 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 uh, a false gospel, a, 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 a light... A, that people believe to be shining in the darkness for even the world outside of the church. People outside of the church believe that one day humanity is going to get their act together, that we're all going to pull together, work together, that we will be able to solve the world's problems of war and hunger and sickness and death if we just buck up and cooperate. That's how many people celebrate Christmas outside of the church, that it's about the indelible human spirit. But no matter how technologically or medically advanced we are, no matter how civilized we become, today there is more cynicism among humanity about the state of the human race than ever before. People are actually giving up hope on whether or not humans can do it. But our text today is a light into the darkness of this world. It's a light into the darkness of Abraham and Sarah's reality. It's a beacon of hope for all of God's people throughout even the bleakest of times. And so today I want to give three reasons why the birth of Isaac should provide a Holy Spirit jolt of hope to our hearts. First is that God is faithful even when his promises seem impossible. On February 22nd, 1980, nobody on the planet believed that the U.S. men's Olympic hockey team could defeat the bigger, stronger, faster Soviet team. Nobody, nobody, nobody who knew anything about anything believed the U.S. can do it. But as the clock was winding down and the U.S. was up by one, broadcaster Al Michaels famously shouted, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Because nobody believed they could do it. It was impossible. And yet sports history, human history, will show that upsets are not miracles. They happen. If you're a sports fan, you know it's a part of the game. On any given day, any team can beat any team on the field, on the ice, on the court, whatever it is. Upsets are not miracles. They happen regularly. But what we see in our text today is not just something that is against the odds. Okay, it's not just something that's outside of what we normally experience. Okay, it's not an unusual event. It's absolutely miraculous. If you haven't been following with us, let me explain why this is such a miracle. The birth of a child, such a miracle. First of all, Sarah is barren. Okay, her whole life, 
Her whole marriage to Abraham, she has not been able to conceive. She's not been able to have a child. Not only that, but she is 90 years old. Okay, Sarah doesn't have the strength for pregnancy, for labor, for delivery, for raising a child. And what's beyond that is Genesis 18 verse 11 says in a very poetic way that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. This is a kind way of saying she is on the wrong side of menopause. Okay, Sarah is a barren 90-year-old post-menopausal woman. As one commentator puts it, Sarah's culture would have looked at her and regarded her womb as twice dead. She was barren. Beyond menopause, there is no chance that woman, that, that Sarah would bear a son. This is why Sarah laughs. When God comes to her and tells her that, 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 that you will bear Abraham a son, she laughs in disbelief. It's not possible. God, I think you got the wrong girl. This is not going to happen. It's impossible. That's what makes it a miracle. Now, many people today don't believe in miracles. We, we refuse to believe in miracles. There are Christians today who claim, well, they claim to be Christians who do not believe in miracles. There was a group of people years ago uh, who claimed to be Christians, called themselves the Jesus Seminar. And they decided that they were gonna accept the responsibility. They were gonna accept the authority to determine once and for all what things in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus actually said and actually did. And so they worked through the gospels and they casted votes. Is this thing that Jesus said or this thing that Jesus did, was that something that happened, may have happened, or definitely did not happen? And guess what hit the editing room floor? All of the miracles, including the resurrection. These self-proclaimed Christians shredded up their Bibles, got rid of any ounce of the miraculous, any ounce of Jesus' claim to deity, got rid of the resurrection, and then still called themselves Christians, even when Paul says in the New Testament, no, you're not. You don't believe in the resurrection. You are to be pitied above all people, Paul says. You have hope only in this life, and that's not good enough. Even people in the church, we try to get rid of the miraculous, try to explain away the miraculous. But listen, the story of scripture is about a world made by God and carefully ordered to serve God's purposes. That means the most natural state of the world is complete obedience and submission to God's desires. It's sin of humanity, this rebellion against God that has subjected the world to chaos and futility and decay and death. And so a miracle, which might be outside of what we consider normal, is actually restoring the world to its most normal operating system. See, a miracle 
occurs when God intentionally intervenes in some specific aspect of creation to realign it so that it once again serves and obeys God's purposes. Now, is that outside of what we regularly experience? Sure, but listen to the way Augustine puts it. Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. See, and so Sarah's womb, which would have been regarded by the culture as twice dead, it is barren, it is uninhabitable for a child's life, it is beyond help. And yet, our text says, it bears life because God wanted it to. Sarah has a child, not just against the odds, miraculously, because God wanted her to. Now, maybe it's not the impossibility of God's promises that are difficult for some of us to wrap our minds around. Maybe you're like, I, I believe that God can do whatever God wants to do. Maybe it's not the impossibility of his promises that is difficult for you. Maybe it's the timing. The second reason we can have hope is because God is faithful even when his promises feel delayed. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years, which in the grand scheme of things is not a long time, but it's a very long time for an individual human life. Okay, they waited 25 years for a child that they knew could not exist apart from God's intervention. Now for us, when somebody makes a promise to us or somebody says they're going to do something and it doesn't happen and it continues to not happen, there's a variety of responses we can have. Either one, they're just not good to keep their word or maybe they forgot or a variety of other reasons that this doesn't happen. But in Hebrew, the concepts of waiting and hoping are so interconnected that God uses these periods of waiting not to discourage hope, but to increase and to build anticipation, expectation, and hope. Listen to Psalm 130, verses 5 through 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. It has this imagery of of these these, uh, watchmen who would stand guard and protect uh, a city. And even with as much uh, light as they could muster from torches and things like that, uh, off in the distance, in the pitch darkness, they could not see if an enemy was gathering uh, its troops preparing to siege the city. And so these watchmen would wait, straining for the first ray of sunlight to to illuminate the horizon so that they would know whether or not they were safe. And so as the watchmen would peer, waiting, knowing that the sun was coming up, 
The psalmist says, that's how I anticipate God's coming. That's how I anticipate God's deliverance. I know that God is faithful and consistent like the sun. I know that I will see him. And so I I strain my eyes, waiting and hoping in expectation for what God will do. This this word for, uh, for waiting in Psalm 130 is the Hebrew word kavah. And it comes from another word that means cord, like a rope. And the idea is that as we wait, we're like a rope caught in the tension between our past and our future. We, we know that something else is coming, whether that's a blessing or a new season or whatever that is. And until we get there, we're, we're like a taut rope just caught in that tension, waiting for God to break the tension, waiting for our future circumstances to come and, and, and break that tension. And so the psalmist says that, that waiting for God's promises is not waiting in uncertainty. It might feel like tension. It might feel unbearable at times, longing for circumstances to be different. But God is faithful. God is consistent. God will break that tension. And for Abraham and Sarah, in their waiting, it is the gift of God. It is is Isaac, the birth of Isaac, the promised son, that breaks that tension so that they are no longer waiting. They're rejoicing. They're receiving the gift that God has promised. And so God has overcome every single obstacle that anyone could throw in his way to prevent his promises from coming. He's overcome death in Sarah's barrenness. He's overcome time and he even overcomes Abraham and Sarah's own faithlessness. See what God promises often feels impossible. It often feels delayed. Perhaps it even feels like God has forgotten what he promised you, but God is faithful. And God is faithful even when his promises are undeserved. See, this is a struggle that I've experienced in the lives of of more than a few people. It's not that God's promises are too good to be true. They're impossible. They can't, can't possibly be true. It's not just that they feel forgotten or delayed, like I'm sick of waiting for God's promises. They're not good enough to wait for. Most often, one of the reasons I I see Christians giving up on the promises of God is not because they're too good, not because they're not good enough, but because I'm not good enough. They're not for me. I have gone too far. I have strayed too long. And we know this in circumstances with friends or family or or children when we we say that we're going to do something, but then they frustrate us, irritate us, make us mad. Like, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so there's many people who live in this this belief in the reality of God, the truth about God, that he exists, that he created, that he wants good things for people. But does he still want them for you? Even after all that you've done, even after the disbelief, even after the sin, does he still want them for you? 
So God is faithful even when his promises are undeserved. Abraham and Sarah did not deserve this. They didn't deserve the, the, the gift of the promised son through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They can look back and see time and time again, faithlessness, failure to trust God and running to Egypt for help. As we studied all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, failure to trust God and taking matters into their own hands. As we see in the circumstance with Hagar and Ishmael, failure to, to, to trust God, failure to trust that he knows what is good for them, failure to believe that God can do it himself, that, that thinking that God needs their help. There's sin and, and faithlessness and failure and fear throughout their time of waiting. And even the most faithful among us are the same. We're the same. We can look back and see, I, I don't, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve God's goodness. We don't, nobody deserves grace. That's why it's called grace. We don't deserve it. As much as we would like to believe that we are steadfast in our faith and in our love for God and in our hope, every time we sin, every time we rebel against one of God's commands or, or whatever it may be, we're effectively saying in that moment, I'm tired of waiting. God, I, I'm tired of waiting for what you have for me. I'm gonna take this instead. Or it's believing God, this, this promise that you've made to me, this thing that you've told me is, is good for me. It's not as good as this thing now. I'll take the good thing now. I'll take the pleasurable thing now than waiting for the better thing later. And in a way, sin is, is settling for what we can acquire for ourselves instead of waiting on the goodness of God. It's like me every Thanksgiving. Get to my Nona's house, so excited for the food. The food is, the, it's the same every year, amazing. One time somebody tried to change the stuffing and they didn't hear the end of it for like five years. Okay? I know what I'm getting at Thanksgiving at Nona's house. And I also know that before dinner, I'm going to get there and there's going to be a table full of like meats and cheeses and olives and chips and guacamole and all of these snacks. And I know just a little bit, I'm not going to be hungry for dinner. And every time I sit down for dinner with the food I've been waiting for and I'm not hungry. Not only not hungry, I like, I can't put any more in me. I've been eating all day. Every time, I'm still just so discouraged with myself after Thursday. I know this. See, sometimes when it feels, in my life anyway, like Jesus is not satisfying me, oftentimes it's because I'm full of the world. You find that in yourself? You know how good God is. You know, you've experienced those seasons in your life. And there's sometimes when you're like, Jesus is just kind of mid right now. Just meh. Most of the time, it's because you're too content with lesser things. It might be good things. You might, it might not be outright sin and rebellion. It could be good things. But when we make that our everything, there's no room for the gift and the blessing and the joy and the hope 
and the peace that God wants to give us. If you're trying to follow Jesus while persisting in all of these things, especially persisting in sin, don't be surprised at the difficulty it will be to follow Jesus. You're, you're in a sense, you're spoiling your appetite. There's no taste for him anymore. See, Abraham and Sarah didn't deserve God's faithfulness. Neither do we. And yet God is faithful. God is faithful even when the circumstances seem impossible. God is faithful even when his promises feel delayed or forgotten. And God is faithful even when we don't deserve it. See, this passage, Genesis 21, 1 through 7, is... uh, it's, a, it's, like an, it's like an ancient birth announcement. You guys ever read birth announcements on social media? Like your friends, someone has a baby. And they, I don't think there is anything that people stress out more about on social media than crafting the perfect caption for the perfect photo of their new baby. I remember doing it. I remember every time my kids were born, like stressing out about this word. And now like they have to know how amazing they are. And like the birth announcements that I read on social media right now, I I half expect it to be something out of the nativity scene. It's like, at 10.30 p.m. last night, his star shone in the east. And then wise men came with gold and frankincense and myrrh. I deliver unto you Christ the Lord. It's so, we're just doting on our children. That's good. We love our kids. But they're unrealistic. I looked up this, uh, this week, realistic birth announcements. One of them was like, you know, Eric and Jessica would like to introduce you to baby Emma. The moment they looked into her eyes, they knew they had never been more in debt. <laughs> that's, that's a little more realistic. Or my favorite one was, uh, I would like to introduce you to my child. Uh, The moment they were born, like a car being driven off the lot, my parenting skills depreciated by 20% the moment I actually had a kid. That's for all the aunts and uncles in the room with no children of their own. Come on. You all know that was funnier than you acted. (laughs) The thing that gets me about this birth announcement after Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for 25 years is actually how anticlimactic it is. I mean, as you know, they've been waiting for what feels like forever for God's promises. I would kind of expect a little more pizzazz, some more exuberance, but it just sticks to the details. It's very matter of fact and, and repetitive. But if you've been studying the Bible for a while, then you know that if something is repetitive, it's important. And so I just want us to read again these first two verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. See, the central theme of this announcement is actually not that a child is born, but that God had done exactly as he said he would do. Despite the impossible or how long it took, God did for Abraham and Sarah 
exactly what he said he would do because he said he would do it. So God's ability to fulfill his promises is contingent on nothing except his own faithfulness. God doesn't need you to meet him halfway. God doesn't need circumstances to be just right. You don't need to be in the right time and in the right place. God's ability to fulfill his promises to you are contingent upon nothing but his own faithfulness. And this story of the birth of Isaac, right? This is, in in a way, God is is bringing the, the nation of Israel into being, the family of Abraham, this, this birth of Isaac in many ways is, is Israel's origin story. And throughout their history, they would endure seasons of very little hope. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, 70 years of exile, waiting for God to bring them back into the land. But God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah would always remind them that God is faithful. Even when circumstances feel impossible, even when the time feels delayed, even when we don't deserve it, God is faithful. Because they began as a people from a barren womb. And this gave them hope. And it continues to give God's people hope that life can come from what we believe is dead. And the same is true for us. We not only share in the heritage of Abraham through faith, but our hope is in the fact that God promised another child. Not to a barren woman, but even more impossibly, if that were possible, promised it to a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which we know today means God with us. God says, you think Isaac is awesome? Wait till you see what I'm about to do. And through the Virgin Mary, God himself has come to us. Now, that feels impossible. And if you think 25 years is long, God's people, after Isaiah delivered that promise, waited for more than 700 years for the promised child to be born to the Virgin Mary. And when he was born and when people recognized what God was doing, they saw the hope, the incredible hope that is available in Christ, that one day God would set the world right. God says that you'll name him Emmanuel. He's gonna, he's gonna, you'll name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And so people anticipated, those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, this promised child, they anticipated and they hoped that Jesus would one day overthrow their political enemies and restore the kingdom of God to Israel, restore the world to the way that it was in the beginning. But as people learned about Jesus' message, many of the leaders, they hated him. 
Those who had been waiting for the promised Messiah for centuries, they hated him because of his message of grace. He seemed to extend grace and forgiveness to who they believed were their enemies, to the Romans. He was, he, he was doing things like healing the, the, the children of Roman soldiers, spending time with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, those who did not deserve God's promises. Jesus came to them. He preached good news to them. He preached the kingdom to them. And because of that, he was hated because of this message of grace. And they were threatened by the message of grace. And so they, they, they arrested him. They beat him. They killed him. They crucified him. And he was buried in a tomb for three days. But God brings life out of what is dead. Whether it's Sarah, her womb, or Jesus' tomb, God brings life out of death. And when Jesus was raised to life, even his own disciples who were told these things would happen would struggle to believe because it's impossible. Because we've been waiting for so long for God to overthrow Rome. The, our enemies in this, in this world and now, and now we have to be friends with them. Now we have to wait longer for God to restore the kingdom to Israel. They couldn't wrap their minds around what they were experiencing. But the truth of the gospel is this, that anyone, regardless of how long you've lived your life apart from Jesus, regardless of how impossible it seems that God's goodness and grace would come to you, regardless of all of the things the enemy wants to put in front of your face right now, things that you've done that prove that you don't deserve this, regardless of all of that, anyone who trusts that Jesus in the manger is God with us and that Jesus on the cross is God crucified for your sins and that Jesus in the tomb was only temporary, that he raised from the dead, you have full guarantee that all of God's promises apply to you, that they will be paid in full when Christ returns. Every Christmas, this is what we celebrate. Every Advent, the season of anticipation, as we literally count the days until Christmas morning, we remember how God's people have always waited for God to fulfill his promises. And we remember that God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. And when his promises are fulfilled, when Christ returns, it will be the most logical thing that we can expect because God said it would happen. I want to close with this. Isaiah 25, verses 8 through 9. When Christ comes, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. 
that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Heavenly Father, we believe that this is true, that you have spoken. And so it will be just as you have said. Lord, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that your promises are sure. Lord, thank you that you can be trusted. Thank you that our hope does not disappoint us because we know that it is rooted in who you are and what you have promised. God, every every Christmas rolls around and, and, and we're told that we need to Rejoice and have peace and joy and hope and love. And yet sometimes our circumstances don't feel like they can allow that. And Lord, realistically, there are people in this room right now who, who want to experience more hope than they have. Whose circumstances have not let them rejoice, not just in this season, but maybe, maybe in a while. God, I pray that through faith in you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would just offer that supernatural jolt of hope that our hearts need. Lord, we come to you and and ask that you would fill us with hope. That we would respond and rejoice in that hope and give you praise in this place. Lord, help us to anticipate the fulfillment of your promises, full of hope. Begin to do that in us now, Lord. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.